Today we're going to be studying one of my favorite topics, and that's the topic of prayer. And so in order to do that, I want to study Paul's prayer with you today in Ephesians chapter 1. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. And the reason why I want to study this passage in Ephesians chapter 1 is so that we could develop the motivation to pray, because I feel that at times we lack the motivation to pray. And I just want to add a comment. This is not in my, in my transcript, but every church that I've ever been to, uh, you go to the prayer meeting and it's very, uh, there's not many people there. And I understand that there's different reasons why people cannot make it to the prayer meeting. But if we can go, then I encourage us all to be there and pray. So as we study this, we're going to develop the motivation to pray, hopefully, and we're also going to learn how to pray. Therefore, the title of today's sermon is Paul's Purpose and Petition. Paul's purpose and his petition, or more simply put, why Paul prayed and then what he prayed. Why Paul prayed and then what he prayed. Therefore, the two main points in my sermon are why Paul prayed, where we will study the reason why he prayed, or you could say his purpose for praying. And then the second point is what he prayed. Here we will study his petition. We're going to look at the contents of his prayer. What did he ask for? In other words, and I believe that if we study and understand these two things, it will motivate us to pray, since the reason why he's praying is because of what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he's praying. And just a side note, that's the motivation for everything we're commanded to do, everything we're called to do is the gospel. And it will motivate us to pray, and it will also, I want to say this too, if we behold the gospel, it will motivate us to pray. It will also teach us how to pray and what to ask for, because Paul's prayer, as we'll see in a minute, it's rooted in gospel promises which have been fulfilled in Christ for the church. Therefore, since we are the church, we should ask the Lord to bless one another with the same graces, the same petitions that Paul asked for the Ephesians so that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And that is the reason why we should pray, is to be filled with the fullness of God. So let's begin by reading Ephesians 1.1, and I feel led to just read the whole chapter. After studying Ephesians, I believe that chapter 1 is actually one unit, and it's good to kind of look at all of that together because of the phrase in verse 15, it says, for this reason, which points back to everything he just said beforehand. And so I think it's profitable to study it together. Let's go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read to the end of the chapter. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to, the, to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, there's the purpose, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For, for this reason, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord, so here's the petition, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave us as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we're going to look at his, the reason why he prayed. Why did Paul pray? And again, the answer to that question is found in verse 15. So if you look in your Bibles at verse 15, it says, For this reason, we're going to read 15 to 16, where he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So notice at the beginning, again, for this reason, it points back to everything he just said in verses 3 to 14. And the reason why I think, why I believe, I'm convinced that he's pointing back to everything he just said in 3 to 14 is because everything in 3 to 14 is one sentence in the original manuscripts. In the original Greek, uh, as many of you know, that's one sentence. There's no period there. In summary, what Paul is saying is he's praying because of what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly for the Ephesians, because they have, because they have believed the gospel and are demonstrating love toward all the saints, thereby fulfilling the purposes of God in his plan of salvation. Paul is rejoicing in the fact that he is seeing God's plan of redemption unfold before his eyes. And we're going to look at a little bit more of that in detail, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'd like us to take a deeper look at the reason why Paul prayed. And by surveying the gospel described in verses 3 to 14. So right now what we're going to do is go back through verses 3 to 14 and just take a cursory glance or a survey of verses 3 to 14 to see why Paul is rejoicing and why he's praying and thanking God for the Ephesians. 
And I think a lot of times we, what we do is we read these verses in 3 to 14, and we read them too fast. And we don't really get gripped by what Paul's saying, this deep theology that he's uh, laying before us. Because everything he's saying here in Ephesians 1 in the New Testament points back to what God did in the Old Testament and it's being fulfilled in the Gospel of Christ. So, now I'd like us to take a deeper look. Again, these verses are all one sentence in the, in the original manuscripts and it's the longest sentence of the Bible where Paul blesses and praises God for what he has done in the gospel. It's almost like Paul's exploding with praise in this, in, this, uh, in this sentence. And according to a couple of sources that I studied, verses 3 to 14 is what's known as a blessing or an extended praise, uh, which is an Old Testament practice where a person blesses God for his great acts of redemption. I'm sure you've read uh, literature like this in the scripture where an individual will just burst in praise for God, praise to God for what God has done in redemption. And if you want to write this down, there, here are a few uh, references where you could read uh, one of these extended praises. One would be Genesis 14.20, 1 Kings 8.15, and Psalm 72.18. Well, furthermore, there are three sections within... 3 to 14, that end with a phrase to the praise of his glorious grace. Within each of the three sections, Paul is praising each person of the Trinity. Um, and in the last section, so in the first section, he praises the Father. From, in the second section, he praises the Son. And in the third section, in verses 3 to 14, he praises the Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and look at each one of those. We're going to look at uh, how he praises the Father in verses 3 to 6. Then we're going to look at how he praises the Son then we're going to look at how he praises the Holy Spirit in verses 3 to 14. Again, the reason why we're looking at this, this is on prayer, but this is why Paul's praying. In, verse, in the first section, verses 3 to 6, Paul is praising the Father for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and for predestining us for adoption as sons in love through Jesus Christ in accordance with his will to the praise of his glory. Well, why did our Father choose us in Christ? Why did he choose you in Christ? Well, he chose us because he loved us, Yet there are several more reasons why he chose us found in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, if you read through it. First, in verse uh, in one four, he says that he chose us so that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's one of the reasons why he chose us. The second reason why he chose us is in uh, 1.10. And it implies that he chose us in Christ in order to be united to Christ, who is head over all things. 112 says that we were chosen in him so that we would receive praise from him for his glorious grace in rescuing us from sin and death and Satan through the cross. And 2.7 says that he chose us in him so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Notice that in 2.7 it says when he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. It says in the coming ages. 
in the coming ages, there's something uh, that we can expect, a hope that's laid up for us in heaven that we could expect where God will lavish the riches of his kindness toward us in Christ. And although um, that's going to be, that's going to take place in the future, I want to encourage you right now, Christian, to, to look forward to that now. Because if we look forward to what's Ahead, the joy, the eternal joy at the right hand of God in Christ. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We've been seated with Him at the right hand of the Father. And it says that there's pleasures forevermore there. So we should look forward to that day because when we look forward to it, we can press on through any type of suffering. And if you've been following the news, I mean, maybe persecution might come soon. We don't know when, but when it does, we'll be prepared. If we're evangelizing ourselves, preaching the gospel to ourselves, and reminding ourselves of the hope laid up for us in heaven. So my last comment on verses 3 to 6 about where Paul praises the Father is, um, is this. I want you to notice that in verse 5 it says that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ. And the teaching on sonship or this doctrine of sonship that's found within the old is found throughout scripture, it was predicted in the Old Testament um, all throughout the Old Testament, but there's one passage I want to share with you today. Please uh, turn in your Bible to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, and we're going to start in verse 4 and read to 7. Isaiah 43, 4, 7, 4 through 7, sorry. Now, um, if you've read through Isaiah, you know that the first half is God pronouncing judgment upon Israel, and then the second half, it's filled with hope. Uh, God is essentially saying, look, I'm going to discipline you. You're going to go into exile, but I'm going to bless you after that once you're disciplined. And so he's, here is, is this hopeful passage, the gospel. Isaiah 43, 4-7. Because you are precious in my eyes. Because, because you're precious in my eyes. God sees you as precious, believer. Because you are precious in my eyes and, and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. So sons, I will bring them. From the east and the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so if we read this in the immediate context, we might say, oh, well, this is about Israel. And it is about ethnic Israel. But it's also about the Gentiles, and I'm going to prove it to you here in a moment. These promises are for us. He says, he predestined us for adoption because he loved us, and because we're precious in his sight. You know, one time, I remember I was backsliding in sin, and uh, I felt pretty dry. I felt like the Lord didn't love me anymore. And I sat down, and I read the scriptures. 
And he came to me and reassured me of his love. I guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, think back to what you were before you were saved, what you were, a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a murderer at heart. Um, and just know that he loved you in eternity past, and he set his love upon you, and he chose, chose you and set you in his son, Christ. Well, let me get back to the text. It says, however, just in case, so just in case you, you aren't sure if we could claim the promise in Isaiah 43 that he loved you, you're precious in his sight, you're his son, you're his daughter. I want to prove that this promise in Isaiah isn't only for ethnic Israel, it's also for Gentiles. So please turn to Ephesians 2.11. Please turn all the way back to Ephesians 2.11. I really want you to see this. So if we start in 2.11 and we read until verse 19, it says, Therefore, remember that at... It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So we're thinking about time here. At that time you were separated from Christ. And what? You were alienated from the common wealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So at one time we were. And at one time we had no hope, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13. But now, but now in Christ, Jesus, you who, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So you have Jew, Jew, Gentile, ethnic Israel, Gentile. You have two, and now we're made one in Christ. Through what? Through the cross. He abolished the law expressed in ordinances and made the two one. Verse, so verse 16 and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, Jew. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, I put in parentheses here, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, of the household of God. So what does that entail? That means that we are recipients of the covenants of promise that are expressed in Isaiah 43 and all throughout the Old Testament. All of it. Brothers and sisters, Paul, rather the word of God says that both Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. So observation two. We're going to go to the second section where Paul praises the Son for redeeming us. So if you're in Ephesians still, turn to one seven. One seven, within the next section, verses seven, uh, verses seven through twelve in chapter one, Paul praises the Son for redeeming us through His blood, thereby cleansing us from our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. The riches, plural, riches of God's grace, which God lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. By the way, that's why I chose the song, "Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery." If you go back, I, I encourage you to look at the lyrics of that song and read it along with Ephesians. It will really edify you. It's glorious. 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time in order to unite all things in Christ in heaven and on earth and for the inheritance we've obtained through God predestining us in Christ. So that's uh, verses 7 through 12. That's what Paul is praising the Son for. Okay. I know this is a lot, and I've been told that sometimes my sermons feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose, drinking water out from a fire hose. So please uh, bear with me, and I'll try to slow down the pace. And that's not me being arrogant, by the way. I just That's the way I think, and that's the way I talk, so excuse me. Okay, so the second, so okay, we've, we've looked at what he praises the son for in the second section, 7 to 12. Now I want to explain what Paul meant here. And so one of my favorite things to study in the scriptures is the mystery that Paul is referring to in verse 9. He says that the mystery has been set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. First, I want to unpack what the mystery is, according to Paul, and then I'm going to unpack what Paul meant when he said that the mystery was a plan for the fullness of time. And so a couple, according to a couple of sources, a better translation for mystery is actually secret because of context. The context being that this is the hidden wisdom and revelation of God that he concealed or veiled in the Old Testament. Um, the actual Greek word for mystery here is mysterio, and that's where we get the, our English word mystery from. But our, our, our thinking or understanding of the definition of mystery might be kind of spo- like, you know, spooky or something like that. But the context here, um, I think that a better translation for mystery is secret. Because again, we're talking about the hidden wisdom of God from the Old Testament. So Paul calls the, the gospel a mystery, rather a secret because it wasn't fully revealed as it has now been revealed within the New Testament. For example, if we just look at Genesis 3.15, many of you are familiar with Genesis 3.15. Theologians have called it the the Proto-Evangelium, or the first mention of the Gospel. I say Genesis 1.1 is the first mention of the Gospel, but here is a promise, a Gospel promise, where God promised that one of Eve's sons would crush the head of the serp, the son of the serpent, we observe how it was hidden within this promise. If a person were to only read until Genesis 3.15, that person would have no idea that God's son, Jesus, would be the son that God promised Eve would bear in order to crush the serpent's head. No one would know that it was by the cross that he would crush the serpent's head. Even if a person were to read only the Old Testament, they would have a difficult time discerning who the Messiah would be and how exactly he would accomplish salvation for humanity. However, thanks be to God, and I say that reverently, we have the New Testament scriptures to understand that Jesus is the son promised in Genesis 3.15, who would crush Satan under his feet and rescue us from Satan through the cross. Okay, uh, now that we've looked at what Paul meant by gospel, by the gospel being a mystery... Let's look at two more passages, examples of, that, of what that mystery is by reading two passages in Ephesians. Paul reveals, he flat out says what the mystery is in Ephesians chapter 3. So uh, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3 in your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read until verse 6. So Ephesians 3, 1, and we'll read to verse 6. So again, we don't have to guess what this mystery is. Paul tells us 
exactly what the mystery is. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and the reason being that the Gentiles are now co-heirs with the, the Jews, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, that's his apostleship, that was given to me for you, the church, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. That's why, it was, that's why I, I consider it hidden or secret knowledge a better translation than mystery. But let me carry on. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other, in other generations as it has now been made as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here's the definition. Here's what the mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Notice that in verse 3-5, he says that the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles. This mystery was communicated throughout the Old Testament. For example, Genesis 12.3. You don't have to turn there. But uh, this mystery that Paul is referring to, the Gentiles being uh, recipients of the promises of God through the cross, is revealed in the Old Testament. Hidden in the Old Testament, Genesis 12.3, when God calls Abraham and promises him this, he says, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. That means all nations will be blessed in Abraham. Really, it's in Christ. Abraham's a type of Christ. And he says, Paul, and so Paul even says that in, in, in Galatians 3.8, that the gospel, that that was the gospel. Genesis 12.3 according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, is the gospel veiled. So by the way, the inclusion of the Gentiles was predicted before God made his promise to Abraham as well. So this is the, 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 um, um, the first time that this mystery was introduced into, into the Old Testament about the Gentiles was not Genesis 12, 3. I'm convinced that the inclusion of the Gentiles was predicted when Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with posterity, with children. I truly believe that. Now those verses which contained, excuse me, so if we, and then if we go, and then we, if we go from Adam to be fruitful and multiply to, to Abraham, uh, God telling him all the families in the earth will be blessed in you, then we go to Jesus in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, twenty. It says, "And Jesus came and said to them, all, thir- all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make dis- and make disciples of all nations, not just Jews, but all nations, and teach them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age." Okay, the last point that I'd like to make on the subject of mystery is that the mystery isn't just the inclusion of the Gentiles. It's much broader than that. There's a lot more to the mystery uh, 
then the inclusion of the Gentiles, uh, then the inclusion of the Gentiles. Later in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 through 32, Paul says that marriage is a mystery, and that mystery was revealed, and that mystery of marriage was revealed in part in Genesis when Adam and Eve were united by God. And, and it's now being fulfilled in Christ and the church. So Adam, the la- so Christ is the last Adam, according to Paul. He's the last Adam, and the church is Eve. So Christ and the church, union with Christ, that, that's what that mystery was pointing forward to. A lot of people look at you funny when you start talking about typology, but it's there. Adam pointed forward to the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first Adam failed to obey God, was kicked out of the garden. He was tempted by God. I mean, he wasn't tempted by God. He was tempted by the serpent. Kicked out of the garden. And so what did God do? He sent the last Adam. He sent many Adams, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David, deliverers of Israel and judges, Samson. All of these men failed to keep covenant with God and they failed to rescue or ransom humanity because of their disobedience. So God sends the last Adam, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was tempted like the last Adam uh, in the wilderness. He did not succumb to the temptation. He, He obeyed God, and because he obeyed God, even to the point of death on a cross to ransom fallen humanity. We are wedded to Christ in union through faith in him. And that's the mystery of marriage. There's more in the scriptures concerning this mystery. More, and the mystery is the gospel in all its multifaceted ways. It's about Christ and his person, his work. So lastly, I know you might be tired of me, tired of me talking about the mystery, but I got one little last section. So what did Paul mean now? What did he mean by, in, in 1, 9 through 10, when he said, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, here's what I want to unpack, as a plan for the fullness of time. What do you mean, fullness of time? What time? What fulfilled the time? Well, this secret will of God was carried out by Christ. God's plan was to rescue humanity by sending his son to die on the cross for the sins of all nations. Jew and Gentile, and this plan reached its fulfillment when Jesus began his earthly ministry. In Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to write it down, in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus said, "For I tell he's telling he's talking to his disciples. For I tell you that this that this scripture must be fulfilled in me." And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53.12 here, a well-known passage revealing the future sufferings of the Messiah. And he's saying that the fullness of time is coming when he would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, which reads the following in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. Christ will see his sons, his offspring, the Gentiles and the Jews, one in him. 
He shall prolong his days. How shall Christ prolong his days? Through the gospel. His sons, the gospel will not fail. It will redeem many sons and bring them to glory. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one make my servant, speaking of Christ, God is speaking about Jesus, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion, an inheritance, with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured, because, why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with, transgressor, with, with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53, and he's saying this prophecy is reaching its fulfillment. That's what Paul meant by, as, as a plan for the fullness of time. Observation three. Within the last section, where, uh, uh, verses Ephesians 1, 3, 13 to 14, Within the last section of uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, Paul praises uh, the Holy Spirit for sealing us according to the promise made in the Old Testament, which is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I'm, I may not have time to finish the second half, but I think that I've, I've explained enough to give context into his prayer. If you read his prayer, he says he wants them to know something. He wants them to know their inheritance, their hope, and the greatness of his immeasurable power that is at work within us who believe. And so here we're talking about inheritance and the Holy Spirit in this last section. So let me go ahead and uh, carry on. So there are many promises in the Old Testament. Let me read Ephesians uh, 1, 13 to 14 really quick just so you can hear it. Again, so in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when you heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed with what? With the promised, underscore promised, highlight and bold, promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I really want to unpack here what he meant by promised Holy Spirit and what he means by inheritance. Ezekiel 36, 26-29. Go ahead and turn there really quick, if you want. You don't have to. I know I've been drilling you in the Bible to flip here and there. But uh, I would encourage you to go there to see it with your own eyes and your own Bible, what Paul is referring to here. So... Um, there are many promises in the Old Testament that Paul could be referring to here, and they are all essentially referring to the New Covenant. Therefore, I think that Ezekiel 36, 26-29 just briefly illustrates what Paul referred to when he said that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the passage also refers to our inheritance, which Paul mentions in the last section of Ephesians 1, 3-14. The promised land, the promised land is our inheritance, which is fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth, which God guarantees we will receive by sealing us with the Spirit. So Ezekiel 36, 26 to 29. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 29. It's just a small passage. 
and he's talking to he's talking to Israel, but again we are we are recipients of this promise that we're, we are heirs of the covenants of promise through faith in the blood of Christ. So this is for you. And I will give you a new heart, new hope, Baptist Church, and a new spirit I will put within you. A new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's the inheritance. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, the land, the promised land. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And so, <clears throat> when Paul says that you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, he's referring to the promises in the Old Testament. This is just one promise concerning the Spirit. There's many others that foreshadow and predict the Spirit pouring out on Gentiles and Jew and Jews and the Jews. But he says, I will, this is a promise of God, I will give you a new heart, I will give you a new spirit, and I will give you the land. There are two more promises found in the Old Testament that Paul was referring to as well. Um, in Isaiah 44.3, so he's referring to uh, these two, so again, we're, we're looking at the promised Holy Spirit. These two verses that I'm about to quote are verses that, uh, predict the uh, um, the promised Holy Spirit. So Isaiah forty four three. For I, God speaking, I will pour out water on the thirsty land, and currents on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. Well, brothers and sisters, um, I know that I cannot finish the rest of this sermon because of time. I wish I could, uh, but I probably can't. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. <clears throat> We're going to go to um, Revelation. And we're going, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 21. And I want you, because, because Revelation 21 gives us hope. I believe if you read it, with your eyes being enlightened, having the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, it will warm, warm your heart and it will give you motivation to pray for one another. It will. It absolutely will. Just a quick note here. Uh, this is from part two of this sermon. And the topic is Ephesians 1.18 where... Paul says and asks God for knowledge so that, here's the purpose of his prayer, so that you, church, may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So let's go ahead and read what he's talking about here. Let's go to Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. And... We'll just read on until I stop. <clears throat> then I, John, John saw a new vision. He saw this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the inheritance. That's the land. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed, uh, passed away, and there is no longer any sea, no more wrath. The sea is a symbolic of God's wrath. There's no more sea. 
No more judgment. It's all been thrown into the lake of fire as an offering to God that pleases his, uh, that's a pleasing aroma. In verse 2, and I, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband, Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. This is an Old Testament passage. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. New heart, new spirit, new land, new Messiah, new creation. And he said, Write, for these, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes, he who overcomes will inherit inherit these things. So, so this is our inheritance. We will dwell among God. We will be his people. He will be our God. And he will wipe away every tear from your face. There will no longer be any death, no more suffering, no more pain, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. This is our inheritance. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Verse 8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, And all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And this is the second death. Verse, And and, uh, this is another passage, I believe. It says, And there will be no longer any night, for they will have no night. For they will have, for they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So these are our inherit- this is our inheritance. I want to close with this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul says, gives us the means or the way that a person can be sanctified. The way that a Christian is sanctified is by beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's by beholding all of his glory, all of the ways in which he's brought this plan of redemption to, fulfill- to fulfillment. It will cause you to to glory and wonder in what God has done in redemptive history to bring you, to make you a son, to make you a daughter. And if you really feel passionate about that, which you will if you're saved, you will want to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So anytime that you um, feel like you're not praying enough, I don't want you to try to lift yourself up by your own belt or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's impossible. The, the, the arm of the flesh can't save and it can't do anything that's glorifying to God. What I want you to do instead of trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps is look to the face of Jesus Christ. Look at his glory. Look at his beauty. Look at your husband, bride, the Lord Jesus, who loved you, died for you, redeemed you with his blood, and you will pray. And it's also the remedy for any other thing, any other thing that is lacking in your life. 
And with that, we'll close. Let's pray really quick. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with boldness and confidence because we have access through his blood, access to the promises of God, and I pray that we would obtain them by faith and pray for one another, pray in accordance with your will, pray with the the, the mind that we desire your plan of redemption be completely filled, that the number of the Gentiles be fully brought in, the gospel would go forth to the ends of the earth, and that we would also pray for one another, believing your promises, trusting in your grace, the riches of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.